Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As Jody said, uh, verses 1 to 6, not what's in your bulletin. And let's read together. Ephesians, 1, or Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, uh, I think on the screen before was, well, maybe it's not, it was there. Um, There it is, yeah. Seven timely imperatives for Trinity Reformed Church, right? And this is imperative number three, except there are no imperatives in this passage, sorry. (laughs) Um, I mean, technically, you know, grammatically, there are no imperatives here, no, no direct commands. But notice what he does say. He, the word he uses is, I implore you. Now, when someone comes to you and says, you need to do this, that's pretty heavy. But when they come and say, would you, I'm begging you. Especially if it's someone you respect and love, right? This has all the weight of a, of a command. And more so. Much more so, really. And uh, if you're still wrapped up about that, well, I'll get you a command in a different passage here in a minute. Stand by. So he implores and he exhorts us. And really, everything is driving in this passage to verse 3. I think everything leads up to this and then everything after flows out of it. And that verse 3 says this, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's the imperative or the, the exhortation or the begging for us today from the Apostle Paul, from the Holy Spirit. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, before we get into that, I want you to think of this, all right? The church is called many things in Scripture. One of the things that it's called is the household of God, the family of God, right? We have fathers and mothers. We have brothers and sisters. We have sons and daughters, In the church, the church is the household of God. And I want you to think about your household, your family, and the kinds of things that bring strife in your family. Are you thinking about the kinds of things that bring strife in your family? Think about it. If you read uh, all the experts on family and you know counseling and, and marriage and all that stuff, 
there are several things that are always at the top of the list in terms of the kinds of things that bring conflict and strife in a family. And it's the kind of things that bring stress in a family. And so always, you go online and read everywhere, always the first, the, the number one thing at the top of the list. Anybody know? It's always money. <laughs> Fighting about money. Anyone relate to that? What else? Discipline of children, right? What else brings strife and conflict? Um, well, building a house. <laughs> Any of you built a house? <laughs> My wife is in the nursery. She could tell you about that. We built a house. Moving, changing jobs, these things bring pressure and stress to a family. Um, death in a family, when a child dies, you know how many marriages end after a child dies? Most of them, statistically. Okay, now think about this. Here we are, the household of God, the family of God, and we can relate to every last one of those things. Money, although God has been very kind to us. But we always feel the pressure. Discipline, right? Death. Transition, oh wait. Building the house. All right, and so we are, and a lot of these things are all just kind of coming together on us right now, and have in the last year or so. So we are set for strife, just like your family would be, just like my family would be. We're set for it. This is not bizarre. We can all relate. And so, we need this passage, because what he wants for us is to fight, not amongst ourselves, <laughs> but for ourselves, to fight for something. And that is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at how he tells us to do this, okay? Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, Please, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Let's just pick this apart for a minute. What does it mean? What does it mean by walk? This is one of the most uh, one of the one of Paul's most favorite images for living the Christian life. He says this over and over again, all through Ephesians, over and over again. Walk. Walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. Don't walk as the Gentiles, as the pagans. Don't walk like them anymore. Don't live your life like them. Walk in love just as Christ loved us. Walk as children of light. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Over and over again, just in the book of Ephesians, that's all from Ephesians. He, he uses this idea of walking, right? And what is walking? 
Walking is just what you do. <laughs> you, you all got here, one way or another, by walking at some point. You get up and you start walking. It's just like you're doing, you're, you're doing the daily, everyday, just daily grind detail of life is walking. That's why he uses that word. It's the most natural, normal thing in the world, the most mundane thing. It covers every aspect of your life. And so he calls us here to walk, to live the daily details of your life, right? Walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by the calling with which you've been called? You're, this, this idea of calling is just synonymous with being a Christian. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that you, the, the, the Christians in Corinth are called to be saints, all right? What it means to be a saint, a Christian, a holy one, is that's what it means by calling. We've, we've all been called to be saints. Jude calls us the called. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. You've been called by God. You have a calling. He has called us with a holy calling. All the things that he has come up to in Ephesians up to this point is all the things we've been called to and for. To be holy. We've been called to faith, called to repentance, given the blessing of forgiveness of all of our sins, given a new heart, given the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a wonder and a glory to that. There's also a weight to it. Because he says this here, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner, to live your daily life in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, think about that. You've been called to be holy. You've been called to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. You've been called to walk in newness of life. He says, walk in a manner worthy of that. What does the word worthy mean? It's a, it's a word that we don't, the, the, the original meaning of this is kind of hard for us to get, but some of us would remember. Remember those old scales at the, uh, at the, meat, mark, at the meat counter that were actually not digital, but like real? <laughs> they actually had weight. Mechanical, that's the word. And so they take, okay, I want a pound of ham, okay. They get out the, the, the weight that weighs a pound, stick it on the thing, right? And then they start piling ham on there. Piling ham, piling ham. And eventually it's like, balances out. And you've got a pound, and you've got a pound. The, uh, the, the ham is worthy of the, of the pound weight. That's what that word means. They equal one another. They're appropriate, right? They, they fit. The one fits the other. So walk in a manner, live, a, live your life all the time, day in, day out, in a manner that measures up to the, the calling. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. The Apostle Paul calls us to this all the time. Conduct yourself. Philippians 
Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, same thing. Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Not just the calling, but the Lord. Not just the gospel, but the Lord. Walk in the manner worthy, 1 Thessalonians, of the God who calls you into his kingdom. Huge, huge calling. Huge exhortation, huge weight on us. This is what we are to do. And this is very important. He says, I implore you, please, live your life like a Christian. Not just when you're here, when you're out walking around. All of your life. It's vitally important. Well, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, this is where he gets into it. We can think these grand thoughts about what it means to walk worthy of the gospel, what, walks worthy of, what it means to walk worthy of the Lord, of your calling, you know, martyrdom, huge, you know, daring acts of faith. Wouldn't that be nice if that's what he says next? Because what he says next is harder than that. Verse two, with all humility. Not just with a little humility, but with all humility, complete humility. This is the only attitude that is worthy of our calling. Remember what we were like Paul says in Titus 3, you remember what we were like? We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to all kinds of lusts and passions, hateful and being hated. You remember what it was like to be like that? And then God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. (laughs) And says in He says in 2 Timothy 1, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us, he gave to us in Jesus Christ. Right? The only attitude that even comes close to being worthy of that calling is humility. What do we have to be proud of? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, and 1 Corinthians is all about this thing, about unity and the terrible, destructive nature of schism in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians that um, those who have schism, those who bring schism in the church, those who fight among one, one another in the church, are like little children, like babies. He says they're fleshly, worldly, right? And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, and he's talking about unity and pride and division. He says in verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? 
What do you have that you didn't get as a gift? And if you did receive it as a gift, why do you boast as if you did not receive it as a gift? You know? What do you have to be proud about? Are you strong? All right, where'd that come from? Are you smart? Okay, great, great. Where'd that come from? Are you wise? Are you godly? Are you self-controlled? Well, surely, I mean, self-controlled means you did that yourself. The problem is the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. <laughs> so no, you didn't. No. Are you rich? Where did that come from? You have a good family? Where did that come from? Did you deserve to be born into your family? Was that some act of your goodness that got you born into that family? This makes no sense. Everything you have, you have as a gift from God. Everything that we tend to puff ourselves up with, look down our noses from, at other people, right? Wrap ourselves up in, in our pride. It's all a gift. Nothing, nothing is yours that you didn't receive. Humility is the root of all of these things that he's calling us to. The root of being able to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Pride is the chief sin. Humility is the chief virtue. Everything flows out of this. And God says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a saying, he who knows himself best will esteem himself least. The more you get to know yourself, the smaller you become in your eyes. At least that's, if you truly know yourself, that's the only way it can go. You can't know yourself and stay proud. And you can't know Jesus Christ and stay proud because he opposes the proud. The only attitude worthy of our calling is humility. So how? Well, number one, with all humility. It's the only thing that fits. And then he goes on, verse two, with all humility and gentleness. Humility is the mother of gentleness. They go together. You can't be humble and not gentle. You can't be gentle unless you're first humble, right? What does he mean by gentle? Gentleness is meekness, mildness, uh, able to absorb an attack, able to absorb a blow without either, either breaking or reacting in kind. 
That's what it means to be gentle, meek. Not returning evil for evil. Gentleness. And then he adds to gentleness, patience. When you think of patience, you think of waiting in line at the BMV. And that certainly calls for patience. Or maybe being sick in bed, right? And it just keeps going on and on. So there's like circumstantial patience, but this is not that. This is relational patience. So what he's talking about. This is all about relationships. So he's talking about being patient with each other. Don't you need to be patient with each other? Don't you need to be patient with me? <laughs> Don't I need to be patient with you? Yeah. Don't I sin against you? Haven't I sinned against you? I got family here. <laughs> Patience. It's interesting, all of these things are exemplified, of course, by our Lord Jesus, right? Humility. Philippians 2, he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Humility. What about gentleness? That not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, that's exactly what he did. 1 Peter 2 tells us that. When he was insulted, he didn't insult back. When threatened, he didn't issue threats back. Remember? But he kept on entrusting himself who judges justly. Patience. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus saved Paul simply so that Paul could be an example of Jesus' perfect patience. <laughs> he says, I'm the chief of sinners, and he saved me anyway. So that everybody could know Hey, if I can save Paul, I can save you. Perfect patience. First Timothy chapter one. How about the next one? Showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance. That's a very respectable way to put this, isn't it? Because we all like to talk about tolerance. What this word really means is just simply putting up with you. And Jesus is the perfect example of that, don't you think? Doesn't he put up with you? In fact, this same word here is used of Jesus. Jesus uses this word in the Gospels, and he says this many times. How long do I have to put up with you? Literally, that's what it says. How long do I have to put up with you? Such an unbelieving people, right? You have little faith. How long do I have to put up with you? <laughs> he, he's the perfect example of putting up with people. 
showing tolerance. I need to be put up with. You understand? So how can I, how can I not put up with you? With my wife, with my kids. I need to be put up with. And if I don't put up with you, I'm a monster. This this showing tolerance is not flattery. It's not flattery. It's not pretending there's no conflict. It's not pretending there's no sin, right? We know that can't be the case because just a few verses later here in in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul commands us to speak the truth to one another, right? But how? In love. Even when we correct one another, we must be humble and gentle and patient. The Apostle Paul, I think, says love covers a multitude of sins. So many of our our sins against one another, it's just like, I know, it's okay. (laughs) You know, it's okay. I understand. If I were you, I would have done exactly the same thing, probably 10 times worse. It's okay. Love covers a multitude of sins. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And yet there's time for, for love's sake to deal with things, and we do that in love and with humility and patience and gentleness. Here's a quote I found this morning. I was reading John Calvin's sermon on this passage. Okay, it's really great. And he says this. He says, our zeal ought to be mixed with kind-heartedness, this gentleness. Our zeal ought to be mixed with kind-heartedness for if it is sauced, sauced, like a sauce, right? For if our zeal is sauced altogether with vinegar, what will come of it? There will be no savor to it. It won't taste very good. (laughs) Therefore, it must have some oil joined with it. Right. So think of this. We treat our salad better, better than we treat each other. <laughs> we don't just add the vinegar, we add the oil. Can't we do that with one another? If you have something hard to say to someone, can't we throw some oil in there, you know? Make it taste a little better, make it a little smoother. That's gentleness. It's humility, it's patience. It's putting up with each other. Not every little thing has to be addressed. And the things that do should be addressed with this humility, right? And that brings us to verse three. So, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, with all humility, 
with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So there's a unity, a oneness, right? That comes from the Holy Spirit. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's the unity of the Holy Spirit. This is not the unity of, that we make. And so notice he doesn't say be diligent to create the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent to stir up the unity of the Spirit. No, it's already there because the Holy Spirit makes it. So what are we to do? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That word preserve, what do you think of when you hear the word preserve? Come on, ladies. Jam? Strawberries? How do you preserve strawberries? You gotta put them in something that keeps them. All right? What is it that, that keeps the unity of the Spirit, that preserves it? It's the canning jar of peace, right? The bond of peace. Got to keep out the nasty bacteria junk, right? You wrap it up with peace. Or men, really, this word actually means guard and protect. And you guard and protect things very carefully, things that are precious. You put it in the lockbox of peace. It's the only way, to, only way that it works. You have to keep the peace in order to keep the unity, to preserve it. To fight with one another is to fight with God. Because God has called us to peace. God has made peace with us. God has made peace with you through the blood of his son. And he's made peace with your brother or your sister, your father, your mother, your children, both in your family and in your church. He's made peace with them. Right? And you're going to fight? Fight against each other is to fight against God. He's called us to peace. You notice how he says this, though? He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Diligence. This is, this, this, this is work. This work of preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is not automatic, it's not easy, it doesn't just happen. If you let your guard down for a nanosecond, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace starts to, to corrode and to weaken, and the cracks start to open in it. This is why Paul says right here later in, in Ephesians 4, 
Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Don't give the devil a foothold. The foothold is a crack, right? That opens up. Ah, I can get in there. And if you're not constantly applying the pressure of this peace, intentionally working hard at it, with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and all that, the devil, the, the jar will crack, the botulism will get in there. And it all goes bad. Be diligent, work hard. Do not give the devil a foothold. If you just let go and think this will all just take care of itself, you end up with my yard. You know what I'm saying? Yards don't take care of themselves. If you think, you know, let go and let God with the yard, <laughs> uh, he'll do something with it, all right. It's, it's not going to be what you want. There is no let, let go and let God with this. Diligence. Be on guard. Every moment, all the time. A little bit of pride. A little bit of censoriousness. Harshness. A little bit of impatience. A little bit of annoyance. That's all it takes. To destroy the unity of the Spirit. Now we know this is important because he, uh, he says, I implore you, okay? So this has to be important. But I want to show you just how important it is. Actually, this preserving this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is a matter of life or death for you, for me. Let me show you how we know this, okay? Uh, look at Titus chapter 3. It's going to be up on the board. There we go. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. Reject. Just stop right there. Reject. What a strong word. Reject. Nope. Reject. You know? Very strong. Reject who? A factious man. You know what factious means? It means the opposite of unity, right? A man who, who finds the cracks and drives the wedge. Who's trying to make a split. Right? That's what factious means. He's not being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's being diligent to break it. So reject a factious man. After a first and second warning. So baseball didn't invent three strikes, you're out. 
The Holy Spirit did. You know, when you play baseball, at least they keep, at least they keep, uh, take that seriously, right? You play baseball, you hit the third strike, no one says, well, you know, it, try again. Now, sometimes they do that with little kids. <laughs> you know, five strikes, four strikes. Oh. It's, let them have another shot. Come on, you know. No, three strikes, you're out. And so it's so important in baseball, which is so important, right? No. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is, here's another strong word, perverted. How's that for a word? A man who is factious is a pervert. That's just what he says. He's perverted. He's twisted because God called us to peace. God put us in a body. God gave us the Holy Spirit. Unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. And you're going to break that and still claim to be at peace with God? Really? No. You're perverted and you're sinning and you're self-condemned is what he says. Self-condemned. The action itself is the judgment. Well, that's intense. There's another one that's maybe a bit more intense. 1 Corinthians 3. It's going to be up on the screen too. Again, 1 Corinthians is all about unity, all about peace. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Who is, it, who is the temple of God here? Well, there's another place in 1 Corinthians where he talks about you being a temple of God. And in that place, he's talking about your body, you and you and you and you and you, your individual physical body, right? And you know what he says in that passage about the Holy Spirit, you being a temple, your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, so don't eat bacon? No, 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 that's not it. What is it? Do you know what he says? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not be sexually immoral. That's what that's about. Joining the temple of the Holy Spirit to a prostitute. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about the church. The body of believers, we all together here. God is building a temple. We are the temple. The church is the temple. God dwells here among us. The Holy Spirit, we are a temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you all, right? And look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God the church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. The, the schismatic man or woman destroys the temple of God.
And what does it say? God will destroy you. But the church of God is holy. Schism is sacrilegious. It's blasphemous. One last thing in this passage. It's the end of it, verses four to six. Why should we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What's the basis of this? What argument does the, does the Apostle Paul bring to make us all say, yeah, okay, you're right. Well, it's not seeing eye to eye about every little detail of doctrine or every little detail of music or practice or education or whatever, okay? That's, that's not the basis of our unity. Look at what he says. Verse four, there is one body, the body of Christ. There is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the basis of our unity. These are massive spiritual truths, bedrock spiritual truths. The very foundation of everything that we share as Christians. We have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one Father, we have one Spirit. So here's my Here's my exhortation to us, right? Give yourself to this work. Don't let it slide for just a second. Don't be one who is a factious man or woman, perverted and self-condemned and sinning. Don't bring destruction on yourself by destroying the church. I implore you. Don't do that. This is the kind of time in the life of any church where this is the the most natural thing to happen. But that would be awful, wouldn't it? Give yourself to this practical, mundane, messy holiness in the context of the church. All of this stuff assumes that we're in the church in relationship, humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with each other. That all assumes relationship in the church. What else does it assume, by the way? Just completely taken for granted. Makes no sense apart from it. What does this assume? All these commands are exhortations. Sin. Your sin. That's why you need to be humble. And everybody else's sin. That's why you need to be gentle and patient and tolerant. None of this makes sense apart from sin. Both yours, mine, everybody else's. 
Don't be surprised when you're sinned against in the church. Maybe you've come here from another church where you were sinned against, right? Finally, I found a church where I'll not be sinned against. Surely here, you know? Oh my. Stay around. We'll, we'll get to you. Oh my. And so what do we do? We, we humble ourselves before God. The church is your home. The church is your family. Don't insulate yourself from the pain and the intimacy and the vulnerability of the church. Love her. The church is where God is glorified. And one of the most glorious things, one of the thing that doesn't make any sense to the world, is exactly this. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean he said that to you and you love him? <laughs> How does that work? Glorious. Supernatural. We're forgiven, so we forgive. Let's pray together. Lord, would you please help us? We are so weak. We are so proud. So intolerant, so censorious, and often bitter and not gentle. Lord, we confess all of that to you. Our only hope is your Holy Spirit. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.